Turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to just jump right on into it. Mark chapter 1. We're just going to go through verses 12 through 15 today. I want you to see some things here that I think will interest you. Jesus, thank you for this time to listen to you. We've gotten to pour out our hearts to you in the worship time, through prayer, through thanksgiving, through confession, through music, through singing, through just simply being, or I should say partaking of being. That's you. Every breath is from you. Every heartbeat is from you. Every, everything is, is a partaking of your power and a manifestation of it. Thank you for how wonderful you are, how big you are, and yet how intentional you are, how interested you are, how intimate you are. Thank you for being here. And Lord, I pray that you would um, open this up, expound this scripture to us in a way that's meaningful and profound in a way that we know we're having an encounter with you. I pray that you'd anoint this time because it's your word. And we treat it, we we take it seriously, Lord. We bow before this as, and expect you to be speaking to us now. We know that you have the ability to use this ancient text to speak right now to us. So would you do that, please? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Mark chapter one, verses 12 through 15. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild, excuse me, the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's as far as we're going to make it today. We've been going through the gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings and we've been trying to look at it with our imaginations. I hope you've been tracking that with me, that you kind of have been able to employ a different part of your brain and try to imagine in your mind's eye, so to speak, what's been going on here. That is, we've been trying to observe the person of Jesus. We've been trying to watch him, to look at him, to notice him. We don't want to know more about him. That is not our exercise. That knowing about Jesus is the vehicle to getting to know Jesus. That's what we want. If you want to know what our church is about and what this particular portion it's about, we want to know Jesus. We want to encounter him now And in this passage, Mark wants us to know that when John the Baptist was arrested by Herod, that event prompted Jesus to move into the northern part of Israel and begin preaching something called the gospel. That's a, 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 because that's so familiar to us, that's kind of a throwaway term. We, our eyes kind of just breeze right over it when we hear, when we hear that term, the gospel. And yet that is what Jesus is all about. It was this message This message branded by the term gospel, evangelion in the the Greek, that Jesus is all about. And to Mark, this is what's really important, to Mark, it is this gospel that actually also defines who Jesus is. So the message is not just what Jesus is about, like a slogan or like a pulpit or like a agenda or dogma. 
It is those things, but it's also Mark's way of, getting, of trying to get you to know Jesus personally. It just, in other words, the gospel comes out of Jesus' character. It's an extension of Jesus. It's what's on his mind. It's what's on his heart. It's what's fueling him. It's his purpose, all of those things. Um, so the gospel is what Jesus is about and also uniquely identifies who Jesus is. So, it's very important. If we're going to get to know Jesus, it's really important that we pause this morning and find out exactly what gospel means, what the gospel is. Now, here's what's really interesting. Chances are, if I were to ask the question to you, if I was just to open it up and say, what is the gospel? Throw some stuff out at me. We would probably get a lot of different answers uh, in fact, a few years ago, I don't remember, maybe 10 years ago or so, this was really actually quite the debate in, in Christianity. What is the gospel? And different denominations were, were weighing in and different scholars were weighing in. And it's a, quite a complex idea. Some might say the gospel says that I'm, I'm sinful and God sent Jesus to forgive my sins. That's, someone might say that's the gospel. Or someone might say the gospel is the good news that Jesus died and rose so that I can go to heaven when I die. Um, others might have, have said the gospel is about Jesus coming to show us the way to live a pleasing life to God. And on and on it goes. First century people, on the other hand, people that this was written to, the first audience of the gospel of Mark, let's put it that way, the first readers, first century people who heard the word gospel or evangelion in the Greek associated the term with the good news of God's salvation as foretold by the prophets, especially Isaiah. Jewish people would have known the term very well. It was, it was uh, the term evangelion is, is, um, trans, is the Septuagint word for a word that we find quite often in the Old Testament prophets. Let me read two of the most famous passages to you that would have stuck out to a Jewish person's mind. This is Isaiah chapter 52. It, these are, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll know it immediately when I start to read it. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messengers who announce peace and brings, here it is, good news who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your sentinels lift up their voices. Together they sing for joy for in plain sight they see the return of the Lord of Zion, the return of the king. Break forth together into singing, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has, has, barred his holy, has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord, of our God, of Yahweh. Gospel. Good news. The salvation of God. Here's another one. You'll know this one. Um, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Jesus wrote, read, read this famous passage when he was in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring, here it is, evangelion, good news to the oppressed. To bind, what does it mean? To bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim, this is very important, liberty to captives, to people who are captive. Um, I lost my place. Oh, there I am. To proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort those who mourn. Good news. 
gospel. So that gives us a general framework, but we but Luke's or excuse me, Mark is and Luke, but Mark in this case is going to drill down on it a little bit more. He's going to get more specific. What did Mark and the other gospel writers, for that matter, mean when they used the term gospel? Or in this case, since Jesus is the one using it in our passage, what did Jesus mean when he used the ter- the word gospel? When you look at a passage like this, it's just four verses long and others, you begin to see that a much fuller definition can be used, needs to be used. We have the general skeleton found in the prophets, and Mark and the gospel writers and Jesus begin to put meat on the bone, so to speak. Today, we're going to learn five things about the gospel from this passage, from this very passage. From four verses, we'll learn five, at least five things. That's all I could find. There might be more. One, there is a redemptive historical element and therefore eschatological element to the gospel. You might want to write these things down. I want you to be familiar with these terms. I, I, will, I will define them. There is a redemptive, historical, and therefore eschatological portion of the gospel. That is, it has to do with the pattern by which God has intervened to save mankind throughout history. That's what that means. Let me say it again. Redemptive historical is a fancy scholarly term that, is, that has to do with the pattern by which God has intervened to save mankind throughout history. There's a pattern. And Jesus' story, Mark is going to say, matches that pattern. Secondly, the gospel is, here's another great word for you, theopolitical. We'll unpack that. The gospel is theopolitical. Thirdly, the gospel is not just political, it's also cosmic. It has cosmic ramifications. Fourthly, the gospel in this and throughout, but this passage shows the gospel is what we'll call cruciform. Cruciform. Cross-shaped. That's what that means. Shaped by the cross. And fifthly, it's access through repentance and faith as an ongoing paradigm. It's access through repentance and faith as an ongoing paradigm. Let's, let's just go through these. Number one, the gospel is a salvation message. That's, the, that's Isaiah, the Old Testament that we just read to you. So it's a salvation message that matches God's pattern of salvation throughout redemptive history. You want me to write, read that again? Just for you, those of you who want to burn it in. The gospel is a salvation message that matches God's pattern of salvation throughout redemptive history. As we discussed last week, the greatest example of God's salvation in a Jewish person's mind was without doubt and without any um, comparison to other things. The, The paramount example was the Exodus. This can't be overstated enough. And I will even go as far as to push this on you to say you cannot understand this passage correctly unless you understand how a Jewish person understood the Exodus as the pinnacle of God's salvation through history to the point where it was, it was commanded by God that every year the story would be retold through the Passover meal to every generation year after year after year after year after year. It was burned into a Jewish person's mind since they're bouncing on mom's knee that God saves. And here's the example of his salvation is the Exodus. And, by the way, 
to match what we're talking about with Jesus here and what Mark is probably doing with Jesus here, the Exodus story, if you think back to that, it did not just define how God saves, it defined God himself in the Exodus. Remember with me, in the beginning of Exodus, God, Yahweh, Israel had strayed so far from the God of their fathers that they really didn't know who he was anymore. Do you remember? Let me read it too. This is Exodus chapter 13, or chapter 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, here it is, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? In other words, Moses anticipated that they would not really know who that was. Maybe a foggy memory. The God of, my father, of your father sent me. And they'd go, oh yeah, yeah. Who is that again? Abraham. Yeah, I remember that. Who was that God? By the way, the Egyptians didn't know either. Remember? This is chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go and let them hold a feast for me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, Who? Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who's he? This isn't just a mockery. He's also telling the truth. Yahweh, who? And as the ex, this is, and you guys, this is one of the main motifs of the Exodus. God is going to describe his character through how he saves. Because look at, at the end of it all, when they go through the, the, the Red Sea, when he leads them through the sea, on the other side of it, they know exactly who Yahweh is. Look at Exodus 15 with me. Look at, watch this. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, uh, oops, did I, did, I, did I do this wrong? Oh, I did. Here it is. Then Moses and the people, this is Exodus 15, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. All of Israel sings this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In other words, he just saved us from this oppressive political economic power, Egypt, that has enslaved us. That's what he did. That's salvation. And then they start to describe God. Look, Yahweh is my strength and my song. Because of his salvation, I will now get descriptive as to who he is. He's my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God. Now they know, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And you can keep reading that chapter. They, go, they get super descriptive. And their descriptions are not abstract. They come from the way he decided to save them. So there's a twofold thing going on here. I'm going to save you, but I'm also going to reveal who I am that I am. I'm going to reveal that through how... And he gives Moses that in the beginning. But then he puts meat on the bones throughout. In chapter 3, he says, tell them I am that I am. What? That's a very deep philosophical term. I am the great uncreated one. I am the reality upon all which the particulars are depending on. I depend on no one. But then he goes through to get specific and practical as he saves them, see. Now, um, for us, when we think of salvation, we think of something very personal, 
in our culture. That's why I'm telling you, if you don't understand this about Jewish folk, you'll misinterpret this passage. When we think of salvation, we think of something very personal. You know, I'm saved so that I can go to heaven when I die. That's what most of us, that's the Christianity that most of us grew up with. I'm a sinner, I'm separated from God, I've blown it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's me, Jesus came to die for me, so if I accept this free gift, I will be saved and I will go to heaven when I die. And and I'm not saying that that's wrong, I'm just saying that's not the way Mark's audience would have thought of it at all. They would have thought the template that they were using in their brains was the exodus, it was national salvation from a political power that they, were, that they were weak to overthrow. And that, now listen, don't be fooled. That had very spiritual connotations as we talked about before. Exile and subjugation by another power meant that they were exiled from God. It was a, it was a spiritual consequence of their sin. So it wasn't just material. I don't even think it was just nationalistic. It had deep spiritual connotations, but it wasn't in the context of I, me, and I. It was us. Our nation needs to be redeemed. We need to understand that. Now, with that in mind, does that translate to what we're seeing here in Mark? Where am I finding that in Mark? Where do we see these, the ideas of the exodus in Mark? Well, I'll give you a hint. Before I, I want, before, I'm going to have, oh, it's still up there. But I'll give you a hint before you look at it. In the Gospels, and you need to understand this, very important for those of you that want to know how to study the Bible yourself, and you should, so that you can get the most out of it. In the Gospels, as a genre, as a writing style of the New Testament, the gospel writers translate meaning into their text not just by what is written, listen please, but also by how their work is written and how it's put together. In other words, they infuse meaning in a literary structure of the actual telling of the narrative and the telling of the plot. They Okay, let me, let me put it this way, simply. Sometimes they intentionally arrange the narrative in a way to remind their readers of other stories. See, if we come to the gospel of Mark or any gospel and think, I'm looking from a Western point of view, I'm looking for a linear historic account that this happened first then this happened next, which happened to this, and then this happened next, you're going to, you're going to misinterpret the gospels. You're not playing according to their rules, see. In the Bible, what you learn is different genres have different rules. So if you, if you come to a Monopoly game with an assumption that you're going to be playing Yahtzee, you're going to have a problem. You have to play according to the, gospel, the genre's rules. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Mark and the other writers were not interested in telling historical fact and telling it the way it was. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they were more interested, they put more emphasis on getting you to understand a message. And the way they, got, they, they would get you to understand a message was the way they would write, and the way they write um, is meant on purpose to make your mind think about something that you've already heard. Um, Scholars today call this, in our vernacular, call this putting hyperlinks in the Bible. In other words, you read something and your brain goes, I've heard that before. That reminds me of this story. And the writers would say, yes. That is, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to argue with you, this is not 
stretchy. This is actually um, known as an intentional exercise within the genre of gospel writing. So with that in mind, let's look at this. In fact, uh, I didn't have it up there, but I'm going to back up to verse 9 if you want to follow along in your own Bibles and just see if something to you sticks out in your brain, okay? Here we go, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Keep the exodus in your mind. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on on him like a dove. And a voice came from from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now think, think, instead of thinking this only in terms of information, think about the way or the, the, uh, the, yeah, the literary way that Mark is telling the story. Does anything signal exodus for you? For me, when I was reading it, the first thing that caught my mind was the term wilderness, right? I thought, wilderness, okay. And this was me honestly studying it from scratch. My brain went, oh, wilderness, I wonder if that has a correlation. You move a few sentences later, how about the timestamp? He was in the wilderness for 40 days, right? In verse 13, when God sent someone to save Israel during the Exodus, his name was Moses, where did he get that name? When God sent someone to save Moses, he was in chapter 2, verse 10, he was drawn out from the water and he was called son by somebody. Just like in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus is drawn out of the water and called son by God the Father. In the Exodus story, after it tells how Moses got his name by being drawn out of the water, the narrative then jumps forward and talks about Moses fleeing into the wilderness to the, to the wilderness of Midian. The narrative just skips all of his adolescence and everything else and jumps right to this incident that drove him out into the wilderness. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen tells us that Moses, before he went back to Egypt to start his ministry, he was in the wilderness for 40 years. Do you see what, we're, you see what Mark's doing here? There was a Jewish tradition that Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before going back to Egypt to start his ministry. And then what next do you see with Jesus? After John the Baptist is arrested, that event prompts him to go back in and start his message, repent and believe me, believe the gospel. Moses was in a sense baptized in Exodus chapter 2. He was driven into the wilderness, into into Midian, where he was tested for 40 years. The old Pharaoh died. An event happened where God said, it's time, and sent him back in to proclaim a message. Let my people go. Could that be coincidence? Most scholars say absolutely not. Very intentional for Mark to write it that way. He was sending a signal. The new Moses has come. He's here. As we will see, Mark is going to show that Jesus is cosmically more than Moses. That this new exodus encompasses a lot more than political or economic slavery, but 
salvation is still about a savior coming to a people that are not free and that are oppressed and that cannot get themselves out. He's, later, the Bible will expand on that. But it still has those main motifs, those main themes, see? It's based on the past, but it's much, much more. Okay, are you, are you following with me? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? Okay. Number two, the gospel is more than political. Listen, this might be a, this is a hard one for us, but not less than political. The gospel is what we will call theopolitical. Um, this is another one that our eyes tend to skip right on over. The word kingdom in our, in our passage. We tend to miss this element of the gospel in our culture because we read the Bible with post-enlightenment eyes, to be quite frank with you. Eyes that say that religion should be private and not out in public, not in the, in the public sphere. It should have nothing to do with society. If you want to believe in, in, in your thing, you go ahead, but you keep that to yourself. Um, the Bible, people that wrote the Bible, those in that time would have been utterly, utterly dismayed and confused by that way of thinking because it's all throughout. Um, from the viewpoint of the gospel writers in the New Testament, the gospel has massive political implications. Let me, let me read you something that I think you'll find very interesting. This is an inscription found um, near Ephesus. It dates back to 9 B.C., about the power of and influence of Rome and the emperor. Let me read this to you. This is an inscription found from this day. Here it is. The providence, that's another word for a deity or, you know, uh, sovereignty, um, something transcendental, right? The providence which has ordered the whole of our life, this is from Rome, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life, here it is, by giving, it, by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with the virtue for doing, for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending him, providence sent Augustus, by sending him, as it were, you ready, as a savior for us, and those who came after to make war to cease and to create order everywhere. Since the Caesar Augustus, through his appearance, has exceeded the hopes of all former good messages. That is the Greek word evangelion. In other words, Augustus brought the gospel. Surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future would surpass him. And since, for the, since the world uh, and since for the world the birthday of, of this God <laughs> was the beginning of his good message, Evangelion. The birthday of Augustus, the incarnation of Augustus, was the beginning of the gospel, according to the Roman Empire, 9 BC. Now, let me read Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who else was called the Son of God? Augustus. Do you know um, Jesus came into Galilee? Let, let me read our, the verse that we're in right now. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And here's what we need to understand. We have to understand this if we're going to be effective here in our world. We need to understand that while Jesus was proclaiming the gospel, he was not only proclaiming that what the prophets, especially Isaiah, had said was being fulfilled, he was simultaneously challenging the political system of his day. To put it simply, in the words of one of my favorite uh, scholars, N.T. Wright, it's just logical. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. There's a natural challenging implication to the gospel on the state that seeks to be more than what it is. So, we need to understand something, and I'm going to be very careful here because it's a big statement. Here it is. Built into the fabric of Christianity is a natural suspicion for state authority. I'm going to clarify this, and I'm going to bring balance to the force, but that needs to be stated, okay? Built into Christianity is a natural suspicion of state authority. Now, again, I know that's a big statement. Let me bring some balance. This does not mean that Christians are anarchists. It doesn't mean that we balk against anything and everything that the government puts out there. In fact, Paul brings balance to this. We're actually called to be the best citizens we can be in a place that is not our home. And that means obeying the rules. Look at, uh, here's the most uh, striking example of this, of the balance of Scripture. Paul says, let every, are you ready for this? Here we go. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. No No matter if you like our current government or not, It's been instituted by God according to this text. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. They're not your enemy. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For she is is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, and not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It doesn't get much more clear than that. We are to, re- we are to obey authority, in it, and according to this, in some, we, we're to give them some radical leeway. We're to give them a lot of leeway, but the moment they begin to take lordship, we become a threat to them and them to us, and this dynamic will always be present. The moment they overreach and say, I'm going to affect who you worship, how you worship, I'm not going to allow you to worship or anything like that. That is where throughout history, and we would do well to remember Christians currently, not just in history past, but currently living in different governments than ours that have to walk this line every day. This is a current thing. For example, for me, and I have 
I don't think I've ever spoken on this, but we'll get specific this morning. For us, I believe that we are to follow mask mandates. But if the government begins to control who can and who cannot come to church, that is where this church will draw the line. We will not ever say you can't come in here unless you show a card. And to me, that's a clear line. It's not that controversial. When, we, when, they, when, when If the government starts to say, you can't worship unless you do this or do this or do that. You can't come to church. Church, see, and, and I, don't, I, I don't believe the government's being nefarious. I'm not necessarily saying there's some kind of plot out there to stop Christianity. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. My point is, I don't expect Governor Inslee to understand the biblical point that to worship God involves a church not like as an accessory, but as an absolute um, essential thing. Church is essential according to our doctrines, according to the Bible that we bow under as God's authority and God's truth. Church is real. It's, it's, it's true. And sure, we can do some things to like a spare tire to get us through a tough time, but we got to get back to being together. That's a thing. Now, this means that we avoid a few extremes taking this, this stance. On the one extreme, we are not balking just to balk. The government says to wear a mask, I recommend that we wear a mask. The government says to get vaccinated, well then, you know, I'm, I would recommend you get vaccinated. But the moment uh, we should wear masks, and, you know, and unless you're, you have a moral problem with it, there's a lot of good reasons to, to, and those are your own. But when it comes to this church, the moment they say you, won't, you can't let people in unless they show you that you've been vaccinated, we can't do, we won't do that. Under scripture, I can't, the elder board and I, we can't find a way for our consciences to be relieved to say, you can't come to our church. But on the other hand, when people come in, will we, will we, will we be wearing masks? Yeah. Will we be keeping distance? Sure. Will we be doing practical good things to love our neighbors that want to come and worship and to love each other? Sure. And if you were to, if you were to decide on your own not to come because you didn't feel safe, we would, we would applaud you for that. If you have a, 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 a compromised immune system, I recognize there are, a lot other good, there are a lot other reasons that are good that are not politically motivated. I've met several people, several people that have different motives than what I would have assumed for why they're not getting vaccinated or not wearing a mask. Some of them have... Uh, some of them took the first shot and they had weird symptoms, so they didn't want to take the second. It has nothing to do with Democrats or Republicans. It's just, for them, they had weird symptoms in their body, so they just don't take it. That's, that's legit. Some people, they, they, there's a, uh, the vaccines were, were uh, not using currently, but built on the studies of, of an aborted fetus. And some people, especially for my Catholic friends, that's, even if it's studied from an aborted fetus, I'm not going to be a part of that. I say, hey, that's according to the conviction of your heart. God bless you. Do that. that. It not, has nothing to do if it's Democrat or Republican. They have, a, they have a conviction of their own that the Spirit has put upon their heart. And I honor that. So there would be no judgment here. You have your own reasons. Some people don't wear masks because they want their babies, their kids to see their faces and, they want, and other people's faces and they want their brains to grow. They have a scientific study that says their kids' brains, brains grow when they see facial expressions. Those are a whole, whatever you think about them or not is up to you, but those are different reasons than what our culture is giving us right now. 
Our president last week said, for those of you that are not getting vaccinated, he only left one reason. It's because you're politically motivated and you're falling for some lie. And I thought, no, 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 no. There are lots of other reasons that I've heard on the street for why people are not doing this. Let's give some credit here. We're thinking goodwilled people. But I cannot stop anybody from coming here to worship Jesus. So that means we be responsible when people come. There's a, and that's the line we draw. Not as a middle finger to our government or to express our rights. Hey, 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, Paul says, I have all these rights and I lay them down by a greater law for my neighbor. That's what the Spirit of God calls us to do. If someone comes in here and they have a, they, they have a, a our, our unmask wearing is hindering them from worshiping God. I would hope that the Spirit of God would, you have a right not to wear a mask, but I would hope that you would say, I'm going to put that on to make that easier for that person. That's just the law of love. It's not any government or that. It's just, okay, I, I don't want to put any hindrance on anyone. See? We'll put a video back on so people can stay home if they want and they can watch on. We're doing everything we can to be as good to our neighbors and to ourselves as possible. Now that gets messy, as we've seen. It's a messy business. Churches are all divided over all this stuff, unfortunately. Churches are divided. And a church can look at a church you know, in another state in a different situation in different circumstances and judge them for what they're doing. And I say, they're in a different place, a different time with different circumstances and different people and different things are different. We need to be wise and discerning for our place in our time. And we need to talk. We need to have discussions. On the other extreme, though, we're not giving, we're not giving the government a blank check either. On the other extreme, we're not saying we'll just do everything they tell us to do. Carte blanche. Nope, we're not doing that either. The moment they say, you can't let people in these doors, I will say, well, I'm not going to do that. The gospel, and the re- where am I getting this? Because we, I'm getting this from, the gospel has political implications. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Okay, enough on that. Number three, the gospel is bigger than politics, though. It's also cosmic. Look at the, this is another thing we skip over in our age of science. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, the devil. Think back to the Exodus story with me. This is a common theme throughout, and especially in the Exodus story, this was one of the major motifs. A huge, the Exodus story was not just about Moses versus the political establishment of Egypt, was it? There was a cosmic battle going on from beginning to end, right? Remember Moses and the sorcerers? They put their staff down, it becomes a snake. Moses puts his staff down, it becomes a snake. We're talking about, and here's what, we're, we're not, here's what the Bible is very clear throughout when, we're, when we talk about a general theology of the spiritual realm and spiritual warfare. These are not fake, made-up spiritual things that were running Egypt. These were real gods, lowercase g. 
We know from the book of Daniel in his prophecy of seeing the prince of Persia, in other words, a, a entity, a spiritual entity that was in charge spiritually of a region of earth. We also know that Moses, um, one of the last speeches that Moses said before he dies, I believe it's a Deuteronomy 32, I should have written it down, written it down but I thought about it at 7 this morning and I just made a note, but look it up, Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 32, one of his last speeches, Moses talks about um, at the Tower of Babel, referring back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, God giving parts of the world over to the sons of God, the word Elohim in the Hebrew. In, the Hebrew. in other words, God giving over parts of the world to evil entities for a time. There is, there, I personally believe, based on biblical evidence, that there, is, there are spiritual authorities over Seattle, over Portland. And the battle that ensued between God, Yahweh, and the gods of Egypt was real. It was real. And Mark is saying there's, a same, there's the same element, a battle, a war going on with Jesus. Jesus, when he's baptized, was a direct attack on Satan's kingdom. And this temptation in the wilderness is Satan hitting back. It's a hit back. A dictator, as you know, doesn't give up power without a fight. They don't let go easily of power. And Jesus' baptism was a direct attack on this, and Satan isn't going to go down, um, isn't going to take that line down. Uh, ver- let, let me read to you Matthew's account of the wilderness temptation. He, he gets a lot more detailed of this cosmic nature. It says, excuse me, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, gosh, I'd say, 40 days, 40 nights, no food. Think, I mean, just think of that, how that wears down your body, how that wears down your mind. And the tempter came to him. This is a spiritual, this is Satan. The tempter came to him when he was, when he was physically wearing down. In other words, um, please don't over-categorize physical, spiritual. They all, we are part of a universe. That means one system. Everything affects itself here, okay? Um, this is why I tell people, you know, when it says don't go to bed, you know, when, the, when the people interpret Ephesians, don't, don't let the sun set on your anger, and couples are like, we have, to, we have to get this figured out before we go to bed. I say, no, that's not what that means. It means don't let it go indefinitely. That's what it means. It, sometimes the best spiritual thing you can do before fighting with your spouse is go to bed. <laughs> Get some sleep. Sometimes I wake up, you know, the next morning. I go to bed all worked up, and I wake up the next morning, and I'm like, oh, all is right with the world. All is good. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm fine because I'm in my right mind. Sleep, it has a spiritual, it's tied to spirituality. So here, when Jesus is down, the tempter came to him. If you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands will, they will bear you up, 
lest, your, lest your foot, uh, you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, well, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And there's a lot we could say here, but I'll save it for when we're actually in Matthew. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. A lot of cosmic stuff going on that we kind of just breeze over. We used to have all these fun TV shows and whole stores dedicated to angels. They're like gone now. I don't hear about them at all. But there's so many, in a lot of pastors that I talk to say, well, it's because it's not, it's not really in the Bible. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's all over the place in the Bible. The incarnation of Christmas time, there's angels coming out of mountain time. They're everywhere. Because there's this cosmic element. But for us, you know, um, in an age of optimism, scientifically, and, and uh, everything else. Why, how can we believe in demons when we have electric lights? How can we, you know, that's back in the 1800s, that's what started to weed that out of our culture. Especially also uh, liberal theology. Let's get rid of all these things. Um, a brilliant man named Schleimacher German, the father of liberal theology, basically said in his brilliance, said we need to get rid of all the things that our modern age doesn't see relevant anymore in the Bible. And he gutted that sucker clean until not, not much of Christianity was left, including basically, generally, all supernatural, all miracles. Let's get rid of it. So we don't like to talk about it anymore. I need to point this out to you because it's here. There's a cosmic battle happening. The gospel is all about principalities falling, spiritual darkness being come against, resisting of the devil, uh, being set free from spiritual slavery. That has to do, that has overlap into political economic slavery and injustice and those types of things. But Christians, you need to understand, we're not reductionistic. Um, Someone came to to our door the other day uh, campaigning for somebody running for mayor in Seattle. And they told me the candidate's plan and uh, just tackle homelessness and um, increase services outside of the police and all of these things and to bring awareness and education. And they basically were saying, we believe that if we, well, this is exactly what they said. They said, our candidate believes that if we take care of every human being's basic needs, that we can solve things like homelessness, mental illness, and those types of things. And they said it with such gusto, and I felt bad to just poo on their parade when I, when I said, I feel like you're being extremely small-minded and reductionistic. And, the, and they said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And I said, well, one, what you're saying is not new. This is not like a new thing that your candidate has come up with. This is, this is and I'm not saying there's not legitimacy to it. There is mental illness that we need to talk about. There is homelessness, and there are practical things. But to say that if we educate people better and just dump more money into the system, that it will solve the problem is reductionistic. And they said, what do you suggest? And I said, well, here's where our paths are going to leave probably forever. I believe in what all the major classical intellectual theistic religions believe, and that is there's a spiritual element that if we don't tackle that, if we don't come against that, we're going to keep going on in this indefinitely. And they had a look on their face like, oh yeah, 
We don't believe in spiritual things. There's a spiritual thing happening. Yes to all those other things. Yes to all those other things. But we cannot keep it there. That's why, and that's why I want to say something to you as Christians. You bring something to this city that the city cannot give itself. Do you understand that? You bring something extremely valuable. More than your taxes. More than uh, your services. Those things are beautiful and wonderful. But you bring prayer you bring a cosmic battle to this city that it needs to have. You understand, when we stand out outside of a Planned Parenthood and we pray, we're not making a political statement. We believe as Christians that we are doing battle in heavenly places and there is actually a war raging that, yeah, finds its way in legis legislation and all of those other things and people's beliefs and ideology and education and all those things, but there is a spiritual battle happening that we are engaging on that front. Do you understand, Christians, that that makes you very, very different and valuable to the city because you bring that perspective that they're not gonna have. There's a cosmic thing going on and Jesus if Jesus is you know when John says in, in John's gospel that darkness lost the day he went to the cross that kingdom the kingdom of evil fell that means something for us Christians in Seattle okay I have to move on the gospel is cruciform it's cruciform it means it comes through suffering Jesus' temptation foreshadows the ultimate test, the ultimate price, and that is the cross. Here's what I'm trying to say. You can equate, generally, you can equate the term the kingdom with resurrection, Easter. But before Easter came, there was what? Someone say a cross cross yes Nathan you're right you get an extra piece of banana bread my friend um, and here's the thing we like and understandably so we like to believe that Jesus endured the cross so that we don't have to suffer and to a certain, to, on a certain level, that's true. Jesus endured the cosmic wrath of God so that we don't have to come under judgment from God. That is true. That is real. I'll never back off from that. It's beautiful and it's glorious. But we take it further and say, therefore, I shouldn't have to suffer here. And or, we, or when we do suffer, we get all bent out of shape because we, we don't see anything good. We don't see any redemption that can come from suffering. We live in an age in, in our culture um, where we try to avoid pain and suffering at all costs. We are the worst culture when it comes to pain, suffering, and death that there is on the planet and in history. Um, <laughs> truly, we can't find a worse culture that has prepared their citizens less than ours when it comes to suffering and death and pain. Christians, here is another beautiful thing that you bring to your, to your family, to your kids, to your city, to your workforce. You believe suffering is likened to a cross that it will eventually bring life and redemption. Your suffering has a purpose. And not only is it inevitable, I know we don't like this, but not only is suffering inevitable, 
it is necessary. It is necessary. Jesus had to be tempted in the wilderness. He had to be proved, tested. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That was God's fault, drove him out there to be tested. Why? Because he comes out of that experience with this moral authority. He steps into his ministry when John's gone, and he moves with power to take on and to take on his mission. It's not just that he's uh, tempted. The word tempted in the Bible is very closely related to, encompasses the word tested. In other words, it's proving you. It's not to shame you, but to inform you of what's really there. You know, you you put a piece of metal ore into a fire, and you pull it out. You see the dross flakes to the top. People that are forging things, they beat the dross off. All the brown and black flakes come off, and they put it back in again, and they make more dross come to the top, and they beat it to the top. The thing is, you would never know by looking at that piece of iron ore, you would never know that all of that was there until you apply stress, fire. It's not a good egg, bad egg type of a thing. It's to show you what God wants to take out. So when you're under stress and you're under pressure, that's one way that it's redemptive. When you see those ugly things come to the surface, when you're under pressure and the ugly comes out, it's not to shame yourself. It's to go, okay, Lord, that's what you're trying to get. That's what you're sanctifying me in. Do you understand that? It's a good thing. It's okay to admit that you lose your temper. It's okay to admit that you, that you, you know, say and do things that you shouldn't do when you're tired, hungry, or, or under stress. It's all right to say those things. Be honest about it. Bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, test me. Jesus had no such thing. And here's what's so beautiful. When Jesus was under pressure, what rose to the top? I'm not talking about in the wilderness anymore. I'm talking about on the cross. When, listen, if you were on a cross... And you had no sleep the night before. And you were, well, let's back up. You're before the court and they're spitting on you. They strip you naked. Not with a nice little PG-13 loincloth that we have in our movies. Jesus was naked on the cross. They're laughing at him. Spitting at him. Ripping out his beard. Beating him. All of this. Marching him up to the cross, up to Golgotha. He has to hold his own cross. He finally gives it to somebody else. He just can't do it. He takes it up. After all this, he's nailed to a cross outside of his city. He's nailed to the cross. Under that kind of pressure, what would naturally come out in you? What naturally comes out in you in just, let's say, bad traffic? Some jerk cuts you off. Or you cut somebody else off and you justify it. When if they did it to you, you would have yelled at them. What comes out? When you're hungry, how snappy do you get at your spouse? How slow are you to take action when you should take action? You know you should do something about some injustice and you don't. Those are the things that come out in you and me. What bubbled to the surface in Jesus when he's on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's who Jesus was. You put Jesus under pressure, what came out? Beauty, 
generosity, forgiveness, submission. I tell you the truth today, you will be with me in paradise. He's still ministering to the guy next to him. Thinks about his mom. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. In other words, John, take care of my mom. Beautiful things coming out in Jesus under pressure. We look to him. The kingdom of God, the gospel is cruciform. It comes under pressure. You guys, just as there is built into Christianity a suspicion of authority, because power corrupts, that's true, there is also built into Christianity an expectation of great suffering and pressure. If you're looking for ease, my friends, you're in the wrong religion. Jesus did not die so that you wouldn't have to. He died so that you wouldn't have to die cosmically. That's true. But he also died to give us a model for practical, powerful living here on this planet. Resurrection only comes through death. You can apply this to any relationship. By the Spirit of God, the more you die in your marriage, the more I die in my marriage and pound myself to that cross by God's Spirit, the more life will be put into my marriage into my parenting, into my career, into my friendships, into my society. You want life. We all want it. I just want to be health. I just want health. I just want to be healed. I just want to find out who I am. I just, I want to, I want to be me. I want to, we have all these things that we want, we want, we want. What we're basically describing is resurrection. And the gospel comes stubbornly and says, that's great. I want that too. But you've got to, there's got to be a cruci- There's got to be a, a, a cross. Finally, the gospel is accessed through repentance and faith. Verse 4, this is a brief, very brief point. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. How do you get it? How do you access it? Repent and believe in the gospel. You know what repent means. Repent means to turn around and put away anything hindering you from following the Messiah into this freedom. If there's anything holding you back, if there's anything hindering you, any idea, any sin, any hang-up, any habit, any of those types of things, you repent of that. You turn away from it. Now look, here's what you need. Here's, I want to add a little caveat to this. You need to understand this is not only an event. This is a process. This is a way of living for the Christian. So in this way, when we ask an unbeliever to become a believer and we say repent, we're not asking them to do anything that we're not actively doing right now. We're saying enter into the Christian lifestyle, which is a lifestyle of repentance. And in this way, justification and salvation have a lot in common with sanctification. It's a spectrum, you see, that starts at a point in time. Yes, I'm going to become a Christian. That's repentance. But then as you get moving on in your life, you have to keep repenting. Am I right? When I'm watching a movie and all of a sudden a sex scene, boof, comes on, I turn away. What am I doing? I'm repenting. I want to look at it. I want to enjoy it. I want to take it in. It makes me feel good. But I turn away because I'm repenting. See? I'm repenting. And I'll have to do it again next time. And I'll have to do it again next time. And I'll have to do it again next time. When that jerk cuts me off, I'm not going to, I'm going to pray for him instead of pray against him. <laughs> I'm going to pray for them. What am I doing? I'm repenting. 
Christianity is about repentance. I'm going to treat my body. Debbie and I have been talking about the theology of the body as we're temples of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to, I'm going to treat my body with respect and kindness. That's repentance, see. I'm being sanctified. When the Spirit uh, tells you about an idol, maybe your family or career, or even good things that have become ultimate things, what do we do as Christians? We repent. We're on the spectrum, and these two go hand in hand. Also, to believe, it means to lean your weight. It means to repent of what you are believing in because there's no such thing as unbelief. You know that? There's no such, you, every, we are believe-made creatures, you are depend. You can you. You would not be out of bed in the morning if you didn't believe in something. That is a that is a, a anthropological reality. You believe that there's purpose in your day. You believe there's purpose in your career. Whether it means to put, even if that means to put food on the table for your kids. And sometimes those beliefs grow into ultimate beliefs called idols, and we repent of those. We put them in their right priority under the belief of Jesus. You see how they go hand in hand. You can't believe without repentance. You can't repent without believing. And that's what we do every Sunday when we come. When we come here, we're living according to the gospel. Do you understand? This applies to us. We realize that this is the pattern of God's salvation, that we have been set free and are being set free. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We have been set free. We are being set free according to the pattern of God's salvation as ultimately seen in Jesus Christ on the cross. He is our new and greater Moses leading us out of a more brutal subjugation to sin and spiritual for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness we get portions of God's manifestation, manna, those types of things, but we're ultimately going to a promised land called heaven, the ultimate resurrection. We're following in this pattern. That's what we're doing in the gospel, and we're meeting together as an assembly. That's an Old Testament word for church. Israel assembled together through the wilderness, and we're coming before God once a week together every seven days to go back into Eden, experience his promise, have his manna that reminds us of his greater things until the ultimate resurrection takes place in heaven, you see. That's what we're doing. Secondly, we realize that that has implications on our society, theopolitical implications on our society. It informs how we live. It informs how we read the news. It informs how we treat our neighbors, ourselves, and everyone else. It, it, it's it's missional. It's taking the gospel into the street because it applies to everyone. It's cosmic. We realize that we're not reductionistic. We're not simple. We're not small-minded. We realize that the, what we're fighting against is not just political, but it's a cosmic battle. So we pray. We pray, we pray, we pray because we, we pray like it matters because it does And we realize that suffering is part of living here in the wilderness. But it's redemptive. It has purpose. It brings resurrection the more that we suffer. It brings out what's in it. It proves us. It brings the dross to the top so the spirit can take it away. It brings redemption and it filters out to all around us. And we access this through believing in his ultimate death on the cross through repentance and faith.